Okay, guess what everybody? It's time to open the Word. It's time to get, <laughs> it's time to get into the Word and uh, hear what God might say to us today through Jesus Christ, His Son. I, I'm excited about that. So welcome to Open Anchor. I hope you've had a good week. I hope this is, uh, uh, whichever path you've traveled this week, I'm thankful that it has led you here to this moment. So uh, today, guess what? It is, uh, this is week 20 of a 22-part series. We are almost to the very, very end of our Law and Prophets series. If you'll recall, the past previous 19 weeks, we have been sitting with Jesus on that hillside in Matthew as he's, as he's given what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, widely regarded as Jesus' most central and uh, frequent teachings. Uh, most, as I've said in previous weeks, view the Sermon on the Mount as a compilation, uh, the greatest hits album, basically, of Jesus. Uh, and here we are coming to the very end in Matthew chapter 7 of that discourse. Uh, so this week's message is called Choose Your Own Adventure. Choose Your Own Adventure. Uh, I'm going to read a quote here, and I want to see, just by a show of hands, if anyone knows, before I say where it's from, where this quote comes from, okay? The world has changed. I see it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. <coughs> All right, I see those hands. Where's it from, Grady? Lord of the Rings. Book or movie? Movie. Uh, yeah, it's definitely at the movie. So. <laughs> Both. Okay. It's actually in the book. <coughs> and for you... Uh, Lord of the Rings nerds, proud Lord of the Rings. Anyway, these haunting words from Lord of the Rings spoken by Treebeard, Galadriel in the movie, they speak of something we understand. I feel it, but it's changed. I feel it in the water, I feel it in the earth, I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost, and for none now live who remember it. It speaks to a growing sense of loss, of this ineffable sense that important things are slipping away from us. Do you ever feel this? I'm not, I don't know why I'm looking at the teenagers. Um, adults, do you ever feel this? <laughs> like, no, it's great. Yeah. But you get this sense. As we grow older, there is a sort of grief that seems to be day by day stealing over us. We recognize that what we once treasured is transient and it will soon be gone. As a parent, you are often startled and saddened by realizations that things that were precious to you, that were formative to you in your childhood, are no more. They are tragically absent from your child's world. Have you ever felt this? You've identified these things like, oh, they will never flip through a JCPenney catalog. <laughs> they will never lay on the floor and circle what they want for Christmas in the Sears catalog. They will never look up their friend's phone number in a phone book. They will never ask, Mom, Dad, what's, why are some of these pages yellow and some of these pages white? They're tragically absent from our children's world. Things like Saturday morning cartoons. I was just explaining this week that cartoons used to only be available on Saturday morning on one of three channels. Um, phones with cords. Phones that were attached to the wall. 
Uh, things like playing outside. <laughs> You know, instead of watching videos about playing outside or do, having an app for it, but actually playing outside. I mean, these things sadly absent. I was shocked and more than a little chagrined uh, very recently when I made a passing reference to one of my children about a choose-your-own-adventure book. A choose-your-own-adventure book, and I meant to ask my wife if we had one of these at home somewhere because I wanted to show you these things. It's like a relic. People would be like, oh, yes. A choose-your-own-adventure book. I mentioned this to my child, and, and my child looked at me like a cow looks at a new gate. <laughs> there was simply no recognition, no resonating with what I was talking about. Zero recognition, having never, ever seen, heard, held, or read of such a novel, of such a book. I was startled. At once I was swimming in an admixture of, of sadness, of shame, of nostalgia, and a gnawing sense, a gnawing sense of loss and missed opportunity. Yeah. My granddaughter is giving voice to what I was feeling in that moment. My, my child, who is part of a book-loving family, bibliophiles, if you will, my child, part of a book-loving family, had never seen, never even heard of a choose-your-own-adventure story. And sadly, some of you here right now have no idea what I'm talking about. Is anyone just so bold to say, I don't know what a choose-your-own-adventure story is? Uh... All right, Lord be with you. <laughs> Basically, here it is. A choose-your-own-adventure story or choose-your-own-adventure novel is a juvenile fiction work or a juvenile fiction novel in which, at certain points, you must choose between two options. You must decide which way you will go. If you choose option A, then turn to page X. It would tell you to turn to this other page. If you choose option B, go to page Y. And the story continues from there until the next point at which you must choose. Anyone read a cho Choose Your Intervention? These were like, a oh man, big part of our upbringing. All right, I'm so glad we have homeschoolers here. All right, <laughs> yes, yes, but it was so exciting. Here is the key. The choices you make when reading a choose-your-own-adventure novel or a choose-your-own-adventure story, um, the choices you make determine the storyline. But more importantly, they determine the ending. They determine how the story ends up, whether it ends up in success or failure, and in some, as you got a little older, life or death. You might be eaten by the tiger if you make this choice. You might eat the tiger if you make the other choice, right? I like choose-your-own-adventure books. Um, I, like them, I liked them when I was young because there were so many options. There was such variability in how a story could play out, how it might be resolved. Um, I guess that choose-your-own-adventure books, in fact, at some level then, are a lot like life, aren't they? They're a lot like life in this respect. The choices we make along the way have a bit, make a big difference in determining where our story ends up. Whether our story ends up good or bad. Whether our story ends up in success or failure. And ultimately, if our story ends up in life or death. 
At points along the way, we are faced with decisions. We make choices that have a direct bearing on where our story ends up. You make good decisions, you end up in a good place. You make bad decisions, you end up in a bad place. We kind of get that, right? And it's the not knowing that sometimes drives us crazy because <laughs> you don't know sometimes. Sometimes in life you have to choose between two seemingly good options, right? And those are the worst. I mean, it's like easy when it's black or white and just an obvious good choice, obvious bad choice, but sometimes they're both decent options, seemingly good choices. What do we do then when we are faced with choices that are ambiguous? Not obviously good and bad, not clear-cut, uh, and where there is no clear internal guidance. Many times we can't know how our decisions affect our life's ultimate outcome, especially when we're faced with seemingly decent options. There are times in our choose-your-own-adventure life when we need wisdom, and we need guidance from an outside source. I mean, how great would it be in a choose-your-own-adventure to be able to contact the author, to talk to the one who actually wrote the book and thus knows all the endings, knows the all possible outcomes to the story of your life? How great would it be to be able to tap into, to hear from the author? While our life can indeed feel like a choose-your-own-adventure story, there is one who knows us. There is one who has ordained our path even before we were born. Because of Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we now have access to the author of the story. You have access through faith in Jesus, to the, you have access to the author of your story. In the with God life, we can trust him to guide us, to guard us, as we go through these decision-filled days, we can rely on His perspective, trust in His providence to watch over us and to lead us onward and upward toward our true home. This is especially important as we view our lives up against eternity. Not just here and now, not just this week, but up against eternity. This is especially important when we view our lives taken in perspective, the perspective that what will truly matter in the end is in God's hands. In God's eyes, our whole life is being lived out, and we are safe. We are secure in His hands. Now, we're getting to a point in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is kind of getting down to the nitty-gritty. He's getting down to the brass tacks of the with God life. And a lot of the things we've read about in the Sermon on the Mount have been kind of warm and fuzzy. You know, the Jesus meek and mild that we always see in Renaissance paintings and things. But here, Jesus is kind of punching us between the eyes. Jesus is saying things in these last several weeks as he's bringing his sermon to a close that really poke us in the chest and cause us to wake up. It's kind of that wake up. You don't want to miss this because this makes all the difference. And so there's a stark reality presented by Jesus here today in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's about Judgment Day. And no one, everyone kind of flinches when, oh, Judgment Day, what? You know, we kind of like to push that off to the side. Like, I don't want to have to think about Judgment Day when I will be judged by Jesus himself. When I will stand before his throne and I will be uh, judged. Yikes! In this moment, at Judgment Day, 
what will essentially be happening is Jesus will be separating the faithful from the unfaithful. The faithful from the unfaithful. And yeah, wow, this feels like a heavy moment. And it should. All of eternity hinges on this moment. Will we be sorted by what we did with Jesus, how we lived under His Lordship? We'll be separated into those who were faithful and those who were not. Incredibly, though, Jesus will surprise many people on this day. He will surprise many on Judgment Day when He sends some away because He never knew them, even though they thought, they were sure that they knew Him. So not only is, is this idea of Judgment Day kind of like, you know, oh, wow, there it is. But then in that moment of Judgment Day, there's a big surprise. Like those who were so confident that thought for sure they were in, find out that they aren't. They're actually out. They're sent away by Jesus. Why? Because I, Jesus, never knew you. Yikes. Let's read this. This is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name when we performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Zoinks. That's a technical term. That means holy moly. This is a big deal. Why would Jesus be so harsh here? Why would Jesus be so uh, stark in telling us about that day? I thought Jesus was just here to be a good teacher and to be a, uh, someone who just made us feel good. No, he's coming and he's saying, hey, there's a reality here that must be addressed. You must be aware of where this is all headed. Now, Christians have, from the beginning, understood that Jesus will return someday. A belief, a, a, a trust in the second coming of Jesus, as Him coming back to us as a conquering King, revealed as the King of the universe to us, that's long been part of what Christians believe from the very beginning. That Jesus would come back and He would bring with Him God's long-awaited justice. He would bring God's long-awaited justice into the world and He would do away with sin. He would do away with evildoers. He would do away with all the work of evil and depravity. All that which stains and causes such, such suffering in our world. That's what Jesus will come and conquer finally. I mean, we don't like the idea of Judgment Day, but man, we need justice. Nobody really, if you actually explain the situation, would say, no, I, I don't think I want justice. I don't want God to bring His justice. I don't want Jesus to come back and bring judgment. Well, when you explain what that means, it's like, well, then, if you don't want justice, then you want the brokenness and the depravity, the wickedness and evil, and the, all the tears and the suffering and death to persist. You want sin and death to get the last word. We long for justice, for things to be set to right. And this is what Jesus ultimately is coming to bring. People who've been around the church and maybe have rejected it would say, well, like, well, I just can't get behind a God that would send people to hell. 
Jesus isn't coming back with like first thing on his checklist, like send people to hell. <laughs> He's not doing that. And in fact, if you want to get into a theological conversation, God isn't sending anybody to hell. We're making our choices. We're making our choices. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all earned a paycheck that reads death. It reads sin, separation, forever from God. God is the one on a rescue mission in Jesus Christ to come and redeem people from hell. Redeem people from an eternity spent apart from God in outer darkness. So anyway, from the beginning, uh, Christ's followers have believed that Jesus is coming back and with him will come justice. Will become judgment that will set things to right. With Jesus' second coming, he will not just be a conquering king, but he will be a righteous judge, not just of mankind, but of all creation. God's view in Christ is to redeem all creation, to bring justice to all creation. He will bring with Him, Jesus will bring with Him, our reward for the life that we lived upon the earth in the days we were given. For those who have lived rightly and well, who have lived in accordance with God's revealed word in Scripture, in accordance with God's revealed will in Jesus, they will be what? Welcomed. Welcomed into the kingdom of God forever. And likewise, conversely, those who have lived, um, those who were rebellious and were living for themselves, who were serving lesser gods, or in other words, practicing idolatry, those who were rejecting God, the Bible tells us that they will be cast into outer darkness. In this vignette of Jesus' teachings on the hillside in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus paints a picture that would have gotten everybody's attention. I mean, it's got our attention, right? But it would have got everybody's attention that day as well. Why? Why? Well, here's what I think. Then, just as now, everyone thought that they were pretty much a good person. Everyone thought that they were pretty much a good person, especially when they were comparing themselves to the next guy. I mean, we can all do that. It was like, yeah, I've got problems. But Tony, <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, I mean, everyone, I mean, but then Tony can look at Christy, and then Christy could be like, well, I'm pretty good, but then there's Lacey, and then Lacey could be like, oh, I'm pretty good, but Nora, you know, I mean. Uh, <laughs> do you find yourself doing this? We play this comparison game, and we kind of look around the room to like, oh, man, I'm pretty jacked up, but... Oh, then there's Ethan. Actually, I'm okay. You know, we can do that, right? We can bolster our self-confidence, our sense that we're okay, we're probably in good with God when compared to somebody else. And if we can't do that, I mean, maybe you're feeling especially low, you can at least look at Hitler. <laughs> or maybe the unit. You know, it's like, well, at least I'm not as bad as the Unabomber. Right? We've always got these, like, default last options, worst case scenarios. Worst case scenario, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. Which I got to tell you, if that's what you're holding on to, if that's where your hope lies, oh my goodness, let's talk, let's pray, let's go humbly to the Lord together. Do not live your life based, basing your goodness on how well you stack up to Hitler or the Unabomber, okay? More specifically, most Christians, most that would call themselves Christians, they assume that they are on good terms with God. Why? Because they go to church. Because after all, they sing songs about Jesus. 
We sang a whole bunch of stuff this morning talking about how great Jesus is, how much we love Jesus, right? So we assume that these are the things that make us good with God. Christians have prayed a prayer. They have done the stuff. They've done all the stuff they get asked to do at church. And then why wouldn't we be okay with God then? Why wouldn't, be, why wouldn't that be what matters? We must be doing this right. But shockingly, here's the deal. Jesus says that many will arrive at Judgment Day. Many will stand before Him on that day and be terribly mistaken. Terribly mistaken. Many well-intentioned churchgoers will find themselves called by Jesus, Him about whom we've sung all these songs. They will hear Jesus say, You are a stranger to me. They will be called a stranger by the one who matters most, by the one that they spent so much time claiming to know. I don't know you. I don't know you. If this doesn't terrify you, I don't know what else will. I don't know. This is scary stuff. And I don't like to traffic in scary stuff, but I can't. I kind of set myself up for this when I say I'm going to preach through passages. Right? Because it inevitably leads me to moments like this where we have to hear Jesus say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I mean, who's he talking to? He's not talking to, like, the ruffians and the, the hypocrites and this and that, whatever. He's talking to people who were believing that they were the in-group. So when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, they're like, oh my goodness, surely he's not talking to me, right? So look at um, verse 21 again. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. There are many who call out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, but who do not really belong to him. In biblical language, their lips are close to him, but their hearts are far away. Their lips are close to him, but their hearts are far away. And, and, Jesus, and God talks about this. Look at Isaiah real quick. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah 29, 13, a famous passage about this. And, the, and so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Their hearts, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this kind of hypocrisy in the, in the religious life, in the Christian life, it's always been a problem with God. God has always disliked this, this discrepancy, this false pretense in the life with God. Where we'd say, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. And he's like, really? Because I don't think you really mean that. Your heart is never in my courts. It's just like your lips stick in through the door and like, I love you. And you're out there doing your own thing all the time. And I really, really dislike that. <coughs> you can't say you're mine and not follow that up with actions. I mean, think about that in your relationships. Think about that in your marriage or uh, with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you know. If you just say it, but you never actually show it, that's a problem there too. Well, likewise, it's always been a problem with God. So what does this mean? Apparently, there is a way to be in church. There is a way to fancy yourself a Christian and all the while be self-deceived. Assuming that we are living a godly life with Jesus as Lord, yet ultimately be doing it wrong and missing the point. 
We do all the churchy church stuff. We, we listen to all the Christian music. We give in the offering, and we've even worn a WWJD bracelet since we were a teenager. <clears throat> what could possibly be missing? I mean, if we checked all those boxes, what else could there be? What more are we to be doing for God? Is there something more to it than just believing the right things and doing the right stuff? Jesus doesn't leave us hanging here. He doesn't just surprise us and then move on. He doesn't leave us hanging. He points out directly what is required of us. Only those who actually do the will of the Father, of my Father in heaven, will enter in. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Only those who faithfully align their will with God's will, only those who are actively making decisions and choices that are conformed to God's truth and God's commands revealed to us in Scripture, only those will find a home in His kingdom. Only those who are actively hiding God's word in their hearts will find themselves on the right side of God's history. Okay? Only those who are, as Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not what? Sin against you. Only those who are daily saying, I want to hide more and more of God's word in my heart so that I might not sin against him, but ultimately that I might find myself on the right side of God's history. That I might be welcomed into his family and into his home and be there forever. That's what I want. So I want to hide His Word in my heart so that His will might guide my life. Defaulting to Christ's wisdom, revealed in Scripture, is the best way to choose your own adventure. It is the best way to live the kind of life that does indeed lead to a good, good end. <coughs> so let's look at uh, verse 22 and 23, Matthew 7. On Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and performed too many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Sit on that hillside for a moment with Jesus. Imagine, I mean, at the beginning of this whole Sermon on the Mount, it says Jesus gathered his disciples around him, those who believed in him, those who were at some degree following after him. These are the people he's talking to, okay? Faithful people. Imagine the slack jaws. Mouths hanging open, eyes getting real wide here around Jesus on the hillside. Astonishingly, what he's saying here is that some who prophesied in his name, some who actually cast out demons in his name, some that even performed inexplicable miracles in his name, on that judgment day will be sent away. Why? Because they are strangers. They're strangers to Jesus. What does this mean here and now? Guys, I don't like this part. What this means is that some of us in ministry, pastors, missionaries, evangelists, worship leaders, we will stand before Jesus on Judgment Day and you will hear me called a stranger. That's terrifying. That you can do this for a living. You can slave over a hot Bible and all the while be a stranger to Jesus. Be called a stranger and then told to depart. Why would this happen? Why would this happen? Here's what I think it is. It's because at a fundamental level, it is possible to ignore God's will. Even doing all this stuff, it's possible to ignore and fail to do God's will. To not be doing 
what we've been told to do. That's possible. In our daily decision-making, it's possible even for pastors and ministry leaders to prioritize themselves over God, to put my will ahead of God's will in my life. And what's sad is that I can do that and you'll never even notice. The pastor you grew up under, the missionaries, the people that you meet, the people that just blow your socks off with their preaching, things like that, they can be putting their self-will ahead of God's will in their life and you won't even notice. But here we find that Jesus notices. Jesus notices. N.T. Wright describes the situation well. He describes the situation well in saying, Some, it seems, will have done remarkable things in Jesus' name, but without knowing Him personally. Mighty deeds are not a final indication of whether someone really belongs to Jesus or not. Hear that? Mighty deeds, powerful works, are not a final indication of whether someone really belongs to Jesus or not. There are some who will have done them, but who will, who will turn out to be evil workers. What counts will be knowing Jesus, or rather, being known by Him. At the end of it all, do we know Jesus? And more than that, does Jesus know us? Are we familiar to Jesus? And here it gets worse, guys. I mean, you're like, oh, please let us come up for air. But before we do that, it gets worse. Jesus doesn't call those who fail to obey God's will ignorant. Jesus doesn't call those who fail to obey God's will unfortunate. What does he call them? He calls them evil. He calls them workers of iniquity. Jesus calls them those who break God's laws. He says these are spiritual criminals. I mean, that's heavy language. It's like, man, isn't there some middle ground here? It's like, no, you either know you or you are a spiritual lawbreaker. You're a criminal. The word here, I, I called a friend this week, uh, Eric Lentz. I told him I'd give him a shout out to talk about the Greek, the original languages here. But uh, the, the word here that Jesus uses is ergozomai. Ergozomai, uh, which means worker and then anomia. Worker of lawlessness or worker of wickedness. So here we are just bouncing along all half-heartedly with a little bit of pretense here and a little bit of ignoring there. We end up before Jesus and he's not like, hey, you poor unfortunate fool. He's like, no, you worker of evil. You're a worker of iniquity. You were in league with the enemy and all the while deceived. Yikes. There, see, what this tells me is this. There is no, in the life with God, there is no neutral ground. There is no coasting. There is no standing still. There's no neutral ground. There are no unwitting accomplices. None will accidentally miss knowing Jesus. No one here who is really setting their heart on knowing and belonging to Jesus and living according to His will will get there and be surprised. Be like, well, I thought I knew you. I really loved you. I didn't know. No, everyone in that moment, they will know. They will hear Jesus' words, and as difficult and terrible as they are, they'll be like, you're so right. In this moment, I see myself more clearly than I've ever seen myself. And you, Jesus, you're right. You're right. Justice will not be a surprise in that moment. No one will accidentally miss out on knowing Jesus. 
There is no neutral ground here. We are either A, we are actively pursuing and are being conformed to God's will, or we are B, a worker of wickedness and lawlessness. We are an evildoer and a lawbreaker. There is no other choice that Jesus gives us here. You are either being conformed to my will, living according to the expressed will of God, or you are a worker of wickedness. I wish Jesus would take it easy on us here, right? Because this is hard. And he's unrelenting. It really seems like Jesus, our Savior and our King, he takes our life with God very seriously. And as a Christian, someone who says, I'm following after Jesus, shouldn't I then also be taking it rather seriously? Right? If, I, if this is what I, how seriously I know Jesus is taking it, how seriously should I take it? How seriously should you be taking it? I would be doing everything I can to say, God, shape me, mold me, grow me in Christ's likeness. Build your will into my life so, 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 so strongly, so pervasively, that when I stand before Jesus, there will be reflection of Him in me. I will look like a part of your family. I, that's what it means to be familiar, family, familiar, same root word, right? I want to be familiar to Jesus because I look like I belong to his family. So, here we can come up for air a little bit, okay? Whew. Life is like a choose-your-own-adventure story. It's a little bit like that. We reach places in our lives day to day where we have to make a choice, and the choice we make leads us somewhere. The decisions we make today make a big difference in where this story leads and how this story ends. It all comes down to these day-to-day -day choices we make, and uh, it comes down to what motivates those choices. Is it Jesus as Lord, or is it me as Lord? Really, it's about who, who are we worshiping? Who are, whose Lordship are we going to live under? Is it Jesus' Lordship, or is it my Lordship? Who am I serving at root in my decisions? What is shaping my thinking? Whose, whose will is guiding my interactions and whose values are directing the investment of my time and my resources? Okay, I don't want to leave this hanging. I don't want you to be like, oh my gosh, I'll just never know until that terrible moment. And I'm probably out. I'm probably out, right? I want to actually give you some things to focus on, some things to, to actually turn your attention to and, and, and point your efforts toward in following after Jesus. What does God require of us? How do we do what Jesus said? How do we do the will of his Father? How do we do his will? And what is his will? Well, <laughs> there's the whole Bible you can spend some time with, right? But where do we start? Well, here's a good start. I want to point out what I call the greats. Start by focusing on the greats. Focus on the great commandment. Focus on the great commission. And focus on the great opportunity. The great commandment, the great commission, and the great opportunity. And we will have our hands full for a little while. We will spend a lot of days working ourselves into His will, uh, working His will into our lives if we focus on the greats, the great commandment, the great commission, and the great opportunity. The great commandment, many of you know this, but look at uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees with His reply, 
they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with his question, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is Jesus telling us here? He's saying, how do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, it begins with repentance, turning away from living your own life on your own terms, turning to God and say, you will be Lord of my life. You'll be king of my life. Jesus will guide and lead me. So it starts with repentance, then obedience, and then loving your neighbor as yourself is about uh, seeking to live a life of compassion. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, being the kind of person that throws your other sandal from the train so that someone might be blessed when they find the other sandal you lost. I mean, serving yourself, spending yourself in service to the poor. So obedience and compassion. This is the, the, the pivot points in the great commandment. And you might say, well, Jesus said these things, but did God ever say these things? Well, listen to what Jesus says. He says, I and the Father are one. If you love me, you'll do what I command. Jesus sees a direct connection between actually loving him and doing what he told us to do. If you love me, you will do my commands. And he speaks nothing from himself, but, also, but only from the Father. So the great commandment, the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and told, told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. And then lastly, the great opportunity, which we find in Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. This is what we're being we are invited to participate in. The ongoing work of God, the kind of worship He looks for. Micah 6, 8. Know, O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what He requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do what is right, or your Bible might say, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So this is the great commandment, the great commission, and the great opportunity we have in following after Jesus. So we ask, am I ordering my life around the love of God and love for others? Am I joining in the ongoing disciple-making work of the church? Uh, am I being a gospel witness according to my God-given gifts and abilities? Are you? Are you seeking to be participant in the work that God, Jesus gave to his church? To go and make disciples, to teach them to obey all that he's commanded them and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we participating in that or are we sitting back just waiting for the pastor to do it? And then, am I pursuing justice? Am I showing mercy? And am I daily seeking to walk humbly with God? to be shaped by Him, to be molded to His will, to be directed, to be given eyes that the Holy Spirit helps me see then the world how God sees it. One thing I want you to maybe spend some time with this week is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. 
that troubling parable Jesus tells about separating the sheep from the goats. Separating the sheep from the goat, the sheep, the sheep from the goats. This really drives home what he's talking about here. Is like, hey, when you took care of those in need, those in prison, those naked, hungry, the people that just needed to to feel God's love and to be healed, were you active in that? Were you pursuing it, seeking it out, and doing whatever you could to alleviate it? This is a troubling parable, but I'd encourage you to spend some time in that and hold it up alongside what Jesus says today in Matthew 7. So, the greats. Do the greats guide your life? Do you have to be perfect at it? No. Have you decided today to be about them? Yes. Well, if the greats, the great commandment, great commission, and great opportunity are at the center of your life in Christ, rest assured, Jesus knows you. Okay, I don't want anyone here to leave worried like, oh, I don't know if Jesus knows me. Be certain of this. If, we're, if we say we love Jesus and we're intent on obeying His commands, know that He knows us. He knows us. In the end, living in obedience to God's will is what matters most. It is what matters most, and it makes all the difference between you being known and you being a stranger to Jesus. So my dream, my prayer, is that we will all arrive in that moment standing before Jesus as King, as He brings that long-awaited justice, and we will see Him look at us. I will see Him look at you, and I will hear Him say, Good job. Well done. I know you. Get in here. How great will that be? I know you. You know me, and I know you. Welcome home. Welcome home. We are all living a choose-your-own-adventure story. So choose wisely. Choose wisely and do the will of the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus so many times over and over again. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was so honest with us, so intent on us understanding what the with God life is truly about. God, I pray that we would have a robust, mature understanding of what it means to have an understanding of, of love. We might say that we love God or we love Jesus, yet unless we are determined to obey Him, to live a life of obedience to His commands, His revealed will, we aren't really loving. And if we aren't really loving, we aren't really known. So God, today we see clearly, we hear clearly that what matters most is being known by Jesus, by ordering our life around His will. God, I pray that um, we would hear and we would incorporate the guidance Jesus gives us, the guidance Scripture gives us, deeply into the center of our life, that we would hear the great commandment to love God and to love others, and we'd hear the great commission that we are sent to make disciples, to welcome others into the life with Jesus. And then also that we are to, to seek justice, to, to love mercy, and to, to walk humbly with you. Scott, these are great starting points. I love it that Jesus doesn't fire shots across our bow and then let us wander about figuring it out. He actually tells us what it requires, and it's simple. I pray that we would prioritize those things Jesus told us today. And for those who've never followed Jesus, I, would, I pray that they would hear that it starts by repenting, by turning by choosing to live under a different authority, no longer under the authority, the tyranny of self, but actually turning to the gracious, loving lordship of Jesus. 
Because in him we have life. We have invitation and we have welcome. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, that sin, that brokenness, that which automatically made us workers of evil has been cleansed, has been removed, and we have been made new. As Paul says, those who trusted in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. We're no longer resident in death. We are now participant in life. Oh, Jesus, thank you. So God, work that truth deeply into our hearts that we would go this week understanding that there's gravity here, there's importance here, there's things not to be missed. But then may we rest in the fact that we are known by Jesus when we are truly following after him. So God, give us hearts that desire that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before we pray, we're going to share communion together. This is our time each month that we get to approach the Lord's table and acknowledge what Jesus has done for us. That His blood that was shed for the remission of sin and His body that was broken for the forgiveness of sins, it's available to us because of God's great mercy shown to us in Christ. And so today we approach the table remembering what He's done for us. We've turned, we've been welcomed into God's family through faith in Jesus. So if that's you, I want you to participate with us. What this means is you, you may not consider Hope and Anchor your church home, and that's fine. Are you following Jesus? Have you turned and said, Jesus, you'll be my king, you'll be my Lord? Well, this is for you. Second thing I'd say is it's appropriate to take a few moments to prepare, to consider, to lay your life before the Lord and say, hey, God, search me and know me. Correct me. I've been chasing all kinds of fool's errands this week. Bring me back. Bring me back. Center me in that knownness in Jesus today, please. And then when you're ready, I'd ask that you come down the center aisle, take the cup, take the bread, uh, and then return to your seats. If you come down the center aisle, return down the side aisles. Once everyone's been served, we'll partake together. So come when you're ready.